Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today on In Unison, we're talking with composer and writer Dale Trumbor about choosing texts, blurring the line between the sacred and the secular, and her idea of a perfectly relaxing evening. To get us acquainted with Dale's compositional style, here is a recording from an album of her works performed by Choral Arts Initiative. This is After the Storm Passes depicting, with various twists and turns, a tumultuous journey on the wind following the rain.
Okay, joining us today on In Unison is LA-based composer and writer Dale Trumbor. Dale has served as composer-in-residence for Choral Chameleon and Nova Vocal Ensemble, as well as artist-in-residence at Copeland House and the Helene Wurlitzer Foundation of New Mexico. Her compositions have performed, been performed widely in the U.S. and internationally by ensembles including the Aeolians, L.A. Master Chorale, Los Angeles Children's Chorus, Tonality, Vocalescence, and many more. In fact, we're going to add IOCSF to that list in December. In 2016, Choral Arts Initiative premiered and recorded Dale's secular quote-unquote requiem, How to Go On, and the resulting album debuted at number six on Billboard's traditional classical chart. Choral Arts Northwest, The Esoterics, Helix Collective, New York Virtuoso Singers, and soprano Jillian Hollis have also commercially recorded her works, and her choral works are available through Boozy and Hawks, G. Shermer, and Graphite Marketplace. Dale is passionate about composing works that set poems, prose, and found text by living writers, but as a writer herself, she has written extensively about working through creative blocks and establishing a career in music in both essays as well as her first book, titled Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. Dale holds a dual degree in music composition and English from the University of Maryland and a Master's of Music in Composition from USC. A New Jersey native, Dale lives in L.A. with her husband and their two cats. Dale, thanks for joining us. We're really, really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me here. Dale is a huge fan of your work. I'm excited to actually officially get to meet you today through this through this interview. Um, and to get our listeners to know you just a little bit better, in a little more casual sense before we dive into discussing some of your works, uh, let's start with an icebreaker. Uh, here's one that I think is, is pretty fun and, and one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, how would you describe a perfectly relaxing evening? So I think... For me, it would depend on uh, what I've already done that day. I think ideally I would have gotten a little bit of work done, either writing or composing. So I would feel like I've gotten that out of the way and now I could be truly relaxed and I would just curl up with a book. Uh, maybe I have something fun to drink, whether that's alcoholic or like kombucha or a cup of tea. Uh, and maybe my husband and my cats are nearby, but they're leaving me alone while I read my book and I just sit there. Maybe I'm outside and the sun is setting. Um, I think that would be perfectly relaxing and uh, yeah. So it'd be, it, would, it, would be, it would be a little bit of a meevening, if you will, just sort of family in the other room and just a little focus on yourself with the drink. That sounds, that sounds pretty relaxing to me too. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I would like to know that, uh, that if I, if I want to go watch a TV show or something and spend time with my, my husband and my cats or other family and friends, they're, they're nearby, but I'm like the most truly relaxed when I'm just by myself being an introvert, uh, happy with a, a book. Yeah. And I love that feeling too, also that like the the relaxing evening comes as a bit of a reward of a day's worth of work and just feeling like you can set your mind at ease. I, I totally relate to that too. Can you guys hear my daughter in the other room right now? She was going, 
She's quoting like a sheep or <laughs> no, it's uh it's from the movie Luca. Have you seen the movie Luca? Oh, I haven't Jay. seen it yet. Oh, I you need have to, to watch see it. it. I've seen yeah. it about fifty or sixty times, uh, because it's the only movie my daughter wants to watch. She's four and a half. Um, but there's a moment in it where Luca's mother is imitating her neighbor who she doesn't like very much and how that neighbor imitates a dolphin. And so that's what that sound is. And she's been doing it nonstop for two days. Oh my God. My wife is like beside herself. She's like, if she does that one more time, I'm going to kill her. I think you need to turn that into compositional gold. I think <laughs> Dolphins Laughing sounds like a great new piece. Dolphins Laughing. That's a good title. Dolphins Laughing. <laughs> I'm sure like someone's it. done that somewhere, but unfortunately that piece is not coming to mind. Dolphin yeah. <laughs> Laughter. Compositional. <laughs> Extended technique. Yeah. <laughs> so when uh, I was introducing you, Dale, we I mentioned your quote unquote secular requiem, and we're going to come to that piece, how to go on, um, in a moment. But before we do that, um, I wanted to briefly talk about sacred and sexual, uh, sacred and secular <laughs> texts. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> That's a whole different conversation right there. Um, you know, in in the world of choral music, at least for me, in my experience, I'm speaking from my own experience. You know, texts for choral music tend to be either sacred or they're written by poets and they're, you know, esoteric and they're all about nature and they're they're poetic and they're not sacred. They're completely the opposite of that. And often we don't see a blurring of that line between the sacred and the secular. But I feel like, especially having worked now on Spiritus Mundi with my choir, that there, you are finding a way to kind of blur that line. And so I wanted to start off by just asking you about your feelings about that line, how it divides those two things. Are they truly separate? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my background, I was raised, um, I was raised Episcopalian, Christian, uh, and then have gotten away from religion as the older I get, the more I consider myself agnostic. Sometimes they say I like to think I'm an or I like to say I'm an atheist who hopes she's wrong, um, which I think actually puts me back in the agnostic camp. Um, I, I don't know what I don't know, right? That's, that's my philosophy. But uh, in everything I do, especially in music, I'm seeking out a sense of, I think what we traditionally expect from religion, I'm looking for a sense of community, of, um, having faith in something bigger than myself, or maybe in the goodness of people, um, looking for these ways to connect that I think some people get in their religious communities. But if you if you aren't part of that, then for me, I find that in choral music, especially in the act of getting together and uh, either listening to a concert or maybe even singing communally. That's something I'm really interested in exploring in future pieces, uh, having the audience sing as well. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think choral music has the power to bridge the gap between the sacred uh, and the secular and and really fulfill all of those needs and that I know I have. But I think no matter what your religious background or upbringing is, you still are looking for a sense of community, um, that faith in something greater than yourself um, or goodness and yeah, I just think if I choose the right texts, I guess my hope is that not only will the act of singing together, making music together, appreciating music together, will all of that create those feelings, but we can also find in the text itself 
um, those elements of connection. You mentioned this a little bit when you talked about um, uh, just the form or the idea of call and response within church or community or sort of spiritual music. And I want to talk a little bit more about um, the ways that the compositional form of spiritual music impact your work, right? Like um, Zane mentioned, you've written a, quote, requiem. Um, there's obviously quite a few um, spiritual forms of, of uh, writing out there. So you've got a mass, you've got a requiem, you've got, you know, everything that we sort of know. I grew up Catholic, so, like, I know it all in Latin and back and forth. And so, like, um, tell, tell us a little bit about um, how your study of the sort of spiritual form of composition is influencing your works now. Yeah, again, I think it's maybe not even so much form as the text itself. Like when I wrote How to Go On, I spent a lot of time with the traditional mass requiem texts and really drew from the idea of uh, these themes of asking for mercy, um, asking for different things and searching, right? Like we're, we're asking for something that we're not seeing yet or not getting that information yet. And that's why we're pleading um, with a God or with nature in how to go on. Um, and this idea of crossing over to the other side, what does it mean? Um, the act of death itself. So um, I found that the, the texts for how to go on, I kept asking questions there. So we're not, we're not asking like grant Lord grant us mercy. We're saying, um, how do we go on? We're saying, um, like in the face of, of everything complex and uh, just things that we don't have answers for, how do we move forward in our life? Um, so that really, that informed uh, the structure of the piece as well, I think, looking for those themes, looking for the arc of moving from um, questioning to ultimate acceptance. And there are even lines in how to go on about this crossing over to the other side, not knowing what's on the other side, but um, there's a line, uh, I think, wait wait for us on the other side of the river. Um, I might be misquoting that, but one of Barbara Crooker's uh, lyrics from Requiescat, which is this big eight minute movement in the middle. This idea of the other side of the river, I just thought is so intriguing. Again, no matter what you're bringing to that text, I wanted anyone who's hearing the piece to be able to bring their own traditions, their own beliefs. Um, I didn't want to write a requiem that was for people who are agnostic. That's That was not at all my intention. I wanted a piece that's secular, but open to whatever you want to bring to it. Let's take a listen to a movement of Dale's secular requiem now. This is the opening movement, How, performed by Choral Arts Initiative.
So on your website, on the page that's about how to go on, um, there's a paragraph that mentions that the movements of the piece were designed to be programmed in a flexible order. And, you know, for a lot of composers, it's like, you know, this is my music, I wrote it this way, and it's supposed to be performed this way. And some composers will say, you can excerpt maybe a couple of movements, but really this is the way that it's supposed to go. Well, and you seem to feel differently that this piece should be fluid and should be up to the performers. Why is that? So for this piece in particular, I was thinking a lot about how the journey through grief is different. I know every time I've experienced loss in my life, it's looked very different, especially uh, if it's losing someone really suddenly versus maybe you're watching a grandparent's slow decay over a period of five or 10 years. Um, That's a much different grieving process ultimately than than a sudden loss. And so I wanted the piece to have these elements of unpredictability um, in a way where I show up at a concert and I don't actually know what's going to happen. There's one movement, uh, sometimes peace comes, where the soloist gets to choose their own path. Whenever they arrive at a cadence, they have two or three notes they can pick from. So usually if I've been to a rehearsal, the soloists have tended to stick to one, like they, they find their path and then they do that every time. But theoretically, they could be choosing a different note. Um, and I really like that feeling actually of, of not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, when I show up to hear my own piece, I'm looking for ways to build that into future pieces too. I like, I like that. Strangely, I like that feeling. I, uh, I have to say, I may be putting you both on the spot here too, but Fausto uh, and I listened to the entirety of How to Go On yesterday. And, and it's interesting hearing the notes about that because he and I were listening to it and thinking, oh gosh, you know, you can't interrupt any of this. The performance of this is just, everything moves so quickly. And then to go back and read and be like, no, actually Dale kind of wants you to think about this a little bit more and put these in different orders. How much do you, um, and to hear you say that, um, you know, you, you want to be surprised when you come and see this, but how much... Um, uh, not quite manipulation, but like how much of the presentation of a piece do you think is also flexible within that? Because the two of us, in, in just in listening to it, imagined um, this concert and, you know, maybe IOC one day will perform the entire piece and that would be incredible. Um, but I'm putting putting in my two cents for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, imagining people also sharing those stories. I mean, being able to see that as part of the art and presentation. You know, is there a point at which your compositions, when you see them presented, you're like, well, that's not quite what I had intended, or do you always sort of like, wow, that's not what I intended, but that's interesting, that's fascinating. Like how much control do you want to exert over the final presentation of your pieces? I do feel like when I write a piece, I have sort of a platonic ideal of like, this is what the piece could or should be. Um, but usually once I get that performance once, then, I, then I'm then i happy to be very hands-off. Um, as long as I have one recording that's close to the vision that I have in my head. And that is also including working with the group and and making a lot of changes between the manuscript that I submit to a group and then the recording or performance or both that happen. Uh, I, I really value the input of conductors, especially in terms of timing. For some reason, I always, always get timing just a little bit off uh, in terms of marking temp, tempi and um, Sometimes conductors want to slow things down at certain moments and take time. And I haven't written that into the score, but then I go back and I end up writing it into the score because it feels like it has to be that way. Like that is the truest expression of the piece now that I've heard it out loud. 
And I think that's a really beautiful part of the process because without that, I'm sort of a dictator and I don't want to be a dictator. I don't want to put everything on the score in a micromanaging way where there's no room for that beautiful expression and uh, interpretation. So yeah, once, once the premiere, usually, once the premiere has happened, I'm happy to let go of the reins. And if someone did want to incorporate storytelling or um, we actually, for the premiere of How to Go On, had thought about doing some sort of not, not uh, choreography, you know, quote unquote, like show tunes, jazz hands, uh, not that, but, but having people move, <laughs> having people move around the stage, especially with the soloists to maybe have people stand in different parts, um, different parts of the piece surrounding the audience or not, uh, very light movement. Um, so something like that, or again, or lighting design, like I think those can definitely enhance a piece in a really beautiful way. Yeah, we've talked a lot about uh, concert design on this podcast and also internally within the leadership of, of IOCSF um, and how we'd like to see the nature of choral performances change toward what you're talking about. You know, there's this idea that a choral performance and classical music in general is a very buttoned up white tie affair that or black tie affair that, um, you know, that's very rigid and it's structured. And, and I, I personally feel that we need to get away from that to make it more accessible to a broader range of people. I'm excited to see what else comes to your mind as you're composing new pieces um, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, uh, something that springs to your mind, like, oh, I, I think it would be cool if the chorus did this in a new piece that I write, something that hasn't been written, you know, something like a hope and a dream, something you might have. I am, I'm writing one piece, uh, for the esoterics in Seattle. That's going to be more of that call and response, uh, audience participation that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and I think that could be a good moment for, uh, either soloists or just members of the choir moving around. The piece takes the form of a calendar. Um, so it's moving us through various months um, and it's describing sort of like undoing, the idea of undoing. So climate change, like large scale changes and then smaller personal changes. What happens when the seasons change? How does that reflect in our, um, again, the bigger picture and in our daily lives? So I know that's something they've done before. I think part of it too is uh, not even up to me. It's just coming in to work with certain choruses. And if the chorus is willing to play with that, then I am, I'm totally down. I, I don't know that I need to write anything into the score or should, but just making it clear that I'm open to that, I think creates, you know, opens the door to probably even just saying it now, if people if people are listening to me say this, maybe they'll be more interested in exploring that with me or in my music. I wonder if we should ask our composers to be more explicit and say, like, please don't just stand on the stage and sing this song. We want <laughs> we want to start encouraging more people to come to choral music concerts. You know, I have lots of friends that are like, man, eh, choral music's just not my thing, but they love music. You know, and it's like, well, choral music is great music. It it's not what you think it is. Let's let's start to change people's opinions. Let's all let's all put that in our in our forefront of our minds, okay, guys? I'm gonna keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, 
uh, you talk about the importance of the text for you and sort of when you start and you, you begin a uh, piece, I think you, you sometimes think about sort of starting the text or the story you're going to tell or the textures you'll paint through the text. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you choose the poets and poems you work with? Yeah, at this point, I've built up a roster of poets that I work with a lot and I can just go to them and ask, do you have anything new? Do you have anything on a random theme like springtime or Americana, like <laughs> whatever the, these themes that uh, conductors are coming to me with a concert theme and then I'm looking for pieces to fulfill a commission. Um, but the way that I built up that roster was by starting with, uh, well, starting with someone who I know very well, which is my aunt, who's a poet, Julie Kane, um, I think 2013 to 14, she was the poet laureate of Louisiana. And I like to bring her up when I talk about this because she has been such a mentor to me in terms of leading an artistic life and showing me that that's possible um, and obviously being very successful at it as well. But I I, um, I knew I wanted to write a song cycle of fairy tale retellings. And I had my aunt, we'd talked about this and she put out a call on a random listserv. I think this was like 12 years ago. Uh, for for poets who had fairy tale retellings. And a bunch of the poems that I found for that, I'm still working with those poets today. So it started with an initial contact. And I have since done, I'll do the, the cold email to, like I'll find a poem I like online and just reach out to the poet directly to ask if I can set it. But once you have that initial uh, conversation, collaboration, it's so easy to then just keep in touch with that person and just keep working with them over and over. So I like to say when when composers are looking for poets to set, start with the people you know, because just like composers, just like any musicians, we all, we, most of us know each other, like, or we can at least recommend four to 10 other composers or musicians who play our instrument. Um, and poets also, poets know a lot of other poets. So if you know just one person who writes, I guarantee they can recommend other writers. Uh, and I also have been encouraging composers to write their own texts. I think that's something that some of us are very intimidated by. Um, and there is a lot of really bad poetry in the world, but I don't think perfect lyrics necessarily are the same as a perfect poem. And I think it's not that hard to write something that you're happy with that is enhanced by music if you practice, just like anything. You have to, you have to be willing to suck at it for a while. Um, but I just, because everything associated with getting rights from contemporary poets, I think composers can be so overwhelmed and intimidated by that whole process. It's so easy. It's so easy to work with yourself and then to make adjustments to your words when you're in the process of writing a piece to go back and revise your words so that they serve the music. I just, again, would highly encourage any composer to at least try, uh, be willing to be bad for a little bit in your drafts, work through multiple drafts. Don't expect to just have something, like write something down and have it be instantly ready to set to music. No, no, no. <laughs> like work through multiple drafts and then try working with your own texts and do that multiple times and you'll get better and better at it as well. Let's hear a composition of Dale's where she sets her own text. Here is You Find Yourself Here, performed by the Lebanon Valley College Chamber Choir. It's a piece about those moments when an experience reshapes you, 
You visit a place, meet a new person, or learn something new about yourself you'll carry with you for the rest of your life.
Dale, you strike me as an um, incredibly uh, generous collaborator that, you know, in, in how you work with poets and and um, how you sort of bring your pieces together. And I wanted to talk about a specific collaboration that is going to be coming to life very soon uh, on a new album that's being released right now. Um, our friend Vince Peterson over at Coral Chameleon, you worked together, uh, or rather you commissioned, they commissioned a piece called What Are We Becoming, which is uh, going to be uh, on the new CD coming out from Choral Chameleon in the next couple of days called Deus Ex Machina, um, which is a piece for chorus and organ. Um, tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you working with Vince and the artists of Choral Chameleon in creating that piece. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that piece is first. Yeah, so Vince had approached me with this idea of secular music for chorus and organ, which I'm so intrigued by. And of course, because again, I'm really interested in that intersection between uh, sacred and secular. I was looking for texts that speak to that um, this kind of spirituality. And I actually, um, I ended up setting one of the texts is by Lynn Ungar, who's uh, a Unitarian Universalist uh, preacher, pastor, reverend. I don't, I don't, I should know what the right term is because I've had a lot of music performed in UU churches and I like, I'm really happy about that. I feel like their mission is so similar to my mission with choral music and finding these texts that speak to our everyday lives and to um, what we search for in religion, but finding it in, in other people. Anyway, um, I was really interested in exploring that intersection again here. And then also the theme of this concert was gonna be Deus Ex Machina. Um, and that idea of a godlike figure swooping in um, like what we think of in literature when we hear deus ex, ex machina um, is this like sort of plot twist at the end where God swoops in and fixes everything. And I know Vince was also thinking about God and the machine, about the organ being this, uh, the, the machine in question uh, that has this religious affiliation. When we hear an organ, we think of church. So all of that was spinning around in my mind and I found these two poems um, uh, one written in the wake of a, a shooting, um, one about uh, climate change and everything. Like, both poems are about things going horribly wrong in the world and asking a lot of questions. Again, a common theme in the poems I'm drawn to. Uh, asking lots of questions about what we can do and not necessarily arriving at any answers, but uh, I think the act of asking the questions moves us through something, helps us process what we're dealing with um, and uh, Lynn's poem, The Last Good Days, uh, Lynn Angar's poem, the final lines are, uh, the solutions, if there are any to be had, are complex, detailed, demanding. The answers are immediate and small. Wake up, give thanks, sing. And I thought that was just so beautiful in terms of capturing the feeling of overwhelm that I know I haven't, especially during the pandemic. Oh my God, like, that's a whole different topic. We can we can come back to that, but just feeling feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what to do in the face of everything. And she's saying the solutions are going to be hard, but the answers, just how to get through the day, can be simple. Um, anyway, yeah, that's a lot about a lot about the texts. But to get back to Coral Chameleon and Vince, um, I had a really lovely time being in New York, working with Vince and the singers and helping shape this piece 
to the organ, the organs that we'd be working with, uh, and to a choral chameleon itself and the, the singers making those little adjustments in terms of timing and sometimes notes too. There are a few little uh, tiny aleatoric bits in the first movement, especially where people get to move at their own pace. Um, yeah, and I'm just, I'm really excited that uh, we're finally releasing this album of this music. Yeah, it's six six days, I think. It comes out on the 20th, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. I think it'll probably time, yeah, just perfectly with the launch of this episode. How yeah, funny how that, that should some, happen. There's going to be some timing on that, for sure. I, I have a quick question about the organ. Have you written a lot of pieces for uh, chorus and organ, or organ by itself or anything? I think I've written two or three. One never got performed. And it was called Running in Church, and I loved it. And it just, I, it never found the right home. And now I don't even know where the score is. It's like on my old computer. I have it on a hard drive. I could dig it up. But, um, but yeah, so I, I took organ lessons for one summer. I'm a pianist by nature. Um, not very good at playing the organ, but I've had the good fortune of working with organists uh, before a piece is performed, I'll find I'll, I'll find a friend to work with uh, to make sure that everything is playable, and then we'll tailor the piece to the organ that uh, the piece is being premiered on specifically. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I feel like the levels of complexity go from like voice and you know just using that instrument to piano to organ to like the carillon, like <laughs> playing these massive like bells in some tower somewhere. So maybe that's next. Maybe we'll have to commission something for choir and carillon. I don't know how the hell that would work, but oh, that would be just amazing, so we, yeah, spending a summer like <laughs> pounding giant keys or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the cool thing about organ though is that an organist will go like they know their instrument and so they'll make adjustments by themselves. Like you don't need to be that detailed. You you need to be a little bit specific, but I think I was so intimidated when I first started writing for organ, thinking I need I needed to put in exactly the sound that I wanted. But you can actually be general in a way that I'm still figuring out. And again, I I still need to sit down with an organist for every piece I write. Um, but it's it's really cool how again the piece changes depending on where it's performed. It's going to be different every time, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. Let's get a little taste of Dale's newly recorded piece. This is movement two of What Are We Becoming, entitled The Last Good Days.
If you want to hear the entire work, including the moment when we hear Dale's setting of the final lines of Lynn Unger's poem, please head over to choralchameleon.com and get yourself a copy of the album. It truly is fantastic. Definitely. There's a new segment of our show that we've been doing, Dale, called Composer Heart to Heart. Uh, And so we've asked a wide array of composers and conductors what they would ask their colleagues if they had an opportunity to have a conversation like this in a regular sort of uh, podcast uh, environment, if you will. And here's a couple of questions for you from that group. Um, The first one is, uh, as conductors, how can we be good partners to composers in the process of commissioning new music that is successful and gets performed after its premiere? Is there a way of getting, quote, what you want as a conductor while still allowing the composer to write what they feel and know? So basically, what are some tips on how to be a good conductor who is collaborating with a composer? Yeah, I think I I would have been concerned, or maybe I was concerned at first when I started writing pieces for conductors that were very, very tailored to that choir. I think I was concerned that those pieces wouldn't be performed as much after um, you know, if if a conductor comes to me and says something like, "Well, we have we only have five bases, and they're oh, I can't really they're they're really baritones, um, but we have this one soprano, like this one mezzo, and you can just give if you want to write a big solo, it's going to be amazing." And then also, there's someone uh, someone in the choir doubles on French horn, so if you want to throw in a French horn, that's cool too. Like hearing all that, you would think, "Okay, I'm going to write this piece with a mezzo solo." Uh, not very low, maybe kind of easier bass and a French horn. But what I've found is those pieces actually get performed just as often. Maybe the French, well, the French horn might be the limiting factor here, but especially if if there's an obligato instrument that can be adapted into or played by a number of different instruments, those pieces do get performed. And I think there's actually something really magical that happens when a piece is written for a specific group. So I would say, don't be afraid to communicate the exact desires and needs. Don't let that be a limiting factor. Don't, don't, don't let that limit you. And don't think that it's going to limit future performances of the piece. I actually thought how to go on was going to be like, like I'm writing this really hard piece with lots of Debussy and all these solos and it's getting performed a, a bunch. It's, it's been performed a lot like I, I really thought maybe we'll just record it and that'll be it maybe a few other pro choirs will do it the colleges are doing it um and yeah so maybe the other piece of advice would be if get that composer as good of a recording as you possibly can because that's the single most helpful tool in getting future performances in my opinion at least is having a really great representation of that piece or again, as, as great as your resources allow, that will help the composer find a future home for the piece. Have you written a lot of pieces for chorus that use specifically sacred texts, like actual, like either words from the Bible or, or texts that reference God specifically? Have you written a lot of pieces in that, in that vein? I haven't. I actually will find strange ways to get around that to the point where I wrote a, a commissioned piece for the uh, American Guild, what was it? For the American Guild of Organists Convention, National Convention. Um, And I found- As it is in heaven, is that the piece you're talking about? As it is in heaven, yeah. And I found a text by Tolstoy that's describing how he prays the Lord's Prayer. And he intersperses different uh, 
different texts from the Bible. Like he, he described, he, yeah, he describes his own thoughts and then he's pulling the Lord's prayer in, and then he's pulling in other um, biblical references. And I just, I, again, so interested in the the intersection between the sacred and the secular in that point where we acknowledge that as humans, we have a limited point of view here. We're looking at everything through our very human lens. I just, that humanity is really intriguing to me um, and how we reflect and, and fragment our thoughts about the greater world through that, like through our flawed selves. And that's what that poem, that's what Tolstoy is getting at. Like he is in the, in the poem itself, he is, or it's not a poem, but in the essay, he's acknowledging his own flawed humanity. Yeah, I, I went to your website and and was I have it open right now. Obviously, we're on the computer, so I went to music and then you can. There's a part of Dale's website for our audience when you navigate to daletrumbor.com. Um, there's a spot under music that says search by theme, and I was like, oh, interesting. So I clicked on that just now and I started looking at all the themes and we see all kinds of things. You know, bestsellers, fast river, birds, the tag cloud, if, love. If yeah, it's this big cloud it, yeah. of tags exactly. And I'm looking for the word sacred as I'm looking through this. And of course, I see nothing that says that. But I did see faith, and I thought, oh, maybe faith is it. So when I clicked on faith, that's where I got um, the uh, the as it is in heaven link, and that's what popped up there. And that's what made me think of that question. Um, and so this is this was the second composer heart to heart question that you know a question that came up from other composers and conductors was, you know, how do we make sacred music relevant to a largely secular society? And so I wonder if we can maybe even twist that question a little bit more now and ask you if you, because you're talking about writing your own text, and I think that's a great thing that we should encourage composers to do more of, because um, I think that it's a really interesting, like holistic way of composing. Like you're not only composing the music, but you're composing the text, which is part of the music. It's not like they're two separate things. They have to be fully integrated. So for you, let's say you were going to write a new piece of music that you wanted to have a, a sacred origin at least, but then to convey it onto a more largely secular audience, um, off the top of your head, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but off the top of your head, what's the way that you might uh, think about doing that? So one, I actually had this come up, um, almost exactly for, uh, a piece honoring Hildegard of Bingen, um, on Bingen. Uh, and I did a secular erasure of her text because it was a concert honoring women like celebrating certain women and so it she was describing the virgin mary and i did a translation um a translation and erasure poem which is a kind of poem where you just omit certain words and i was thinking like can we just take the parts where she's describing she's praising like what it means to be uh to be the again like the platonic ideal of a woman um or or mary like what are the qualities that she sees in mary that are very human um so again that's just filtering it through the lens of being a human person knowing what you know and not knowing what you can't know and accepting and acknowledging the two i feel like that's that's the key and that's what i wish more religion would do is just acknowledge what we can't possibly know and and that's not a flaw in the system that is part of the system that is part of what it means to be a human person 
um, believing or not believing and that doubt is okay. I don't know anyone to even it, my, my most religious friends, they, we all have doubts. We all have moments of doubt. I think to acknowledge that doubt and to, to try to meet ourselves and others, um, wherever we are in terms of that doubt and that acceptance and that belief, I think that's way healthier than, uh, forcing ourselves to into a certain dogma or a certain belief pattern that maybe doesn't align with the doubt that we're feeling. Yeah, it feels it feels almost like the in for or these secular humanist um sort of thoughts, the question is the answer. Yeah. Right? That very often secular it's like, well no, we need to give people an answer because that's what's going to make people feel better. And I think those of us who have sort of agnostic or atheist or agnostic thoughts or feelings sort of understand that the struggle is the thing that we really want to relate to on a human level with each other, that it's okay to have those doubts and those questions, and that that's what makes us human. And I see that through all throughout your works, especially um, in What Are We Becoming and in, in Requiem. And I mean, just, it's quite beautiful. And I have to say, it's, I, I deeply appreciate it as someone who has those same questions. It's nice to know that there are other people who are having the same questions and that it's okay to bring those questions and doubts out. Thank you for that. Speaking of doubts, <laughs> wow, I think we would, I think we'd be remiss. Thank we got to put in a little I bit would... of applause right now because that was a segue <laughs> worth wow, celebrating. Well, yes. Dale, you Great are segue. you are Thank you. You're a little bit of an expert. I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, a book that you wrote called Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. Um, and basically, I think it, you talk a little bit about your, your journey of sort of how do you quell those doubts? How do you quell the anxiety and just write? You know, you talked a little bit before, before about sucking when you write poetry, and I'd like, it's fine. Um, first question for you about this piece, and I believe it's available on Amazon in a bunch of different places. We'll put a link to it on the show. Um, but when did you decide to write this book, and, and why? I think I decided to write it, let's see, it came out two years ago, and I decided to write it... Uh, well, I, I think I'd been thinking about writing this kind of book for two or three years before that, knowing that when I first started composing, and then when I was composing in college, especially, I I couldn't see any path forward. I just had no idea how you become a composer in the sense of the more technical things, which is not what this book is about as much. So there's a, there's a little bit of like networking dealing with other, there's a whole chapter, a whole section on dealing with other people. Um, but yeah, the, the technical money business side of things was very daunting. And then just the idea of how do you structure your life, uh, knowing that, at least for me, it's in every piece I write, I experience a certain level of self-doubt and these um, negative thoughts about what I'm doing that aren't necessarily going to derail the process. Um, and they're not even really a, a bad thing in the sense of like wanting them to go away entirely. I don't think I will ever get rid of those thoughts. It's again, like embracing the doubt, meeting myself where I am. Really the whole book uh, is a message back in time to myself, um, just saying it's okay to have all of these thoughts and have lots of tools on how to cope with them because they're going to keep coming up. You're going to keep, at least again, speaking from my own experience, I'm going to keep feeling jealousy. I'm going to keep feeling um, 
anxieties about like, am I good enough? Is my work good enough? Am I where I should be? What is where I should be? What does it look like to be successful? Um, what do I want to be feeling when I create my work? Uh, there's so many questions. <laughs> Again, the, the, the theme of this conversation is like sitting with your questions, I think. Um, and learning to be okay with sitting in the question instead of jumping right to an answer before you're ready to arrive at that answer. Who were, what were some of the resources that helped you in putting together this book? If it's a letter back to yourself in time, sort of to help quell some of those anxieties, what were some of the things that helped you or what, who were some, who, or what were some of the resources that helped you uh, during that period? So I, I've read so many books on the writing process, the process of writing words. There are tons of books for writers and they're all slightly different. There are common themes, right? Like butt in chair is the main, like you have to sit down to do your work or your work doesn't get done. You can analyze yourself and your thoughts all day long, but that's not going to write anything for you. Like unless you sit down and do your work. Uh, So books like Bird by Bird or uh, by Anne Lamott, um, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is more, that's more about the creative process, not just writing in particular. Um, Though she, that author is a screenwriter and writer. And all of these books are drawing from the experience of writing words. And I just, I wanted a book so badly that talked about writing music, where the examples were all about writing music and the challenges that I was overcoming. Some of them overlap, of course, like there's in the creative process, there are plenty of things that are really common. And I do think that almost anyone who's creative, or I hope that anyone who's creative could come to this book and get something out of it, uh, get some insight into their own process from it. But again, it comes back to this idea of specificity, um, like the same thing I was talking about with commissioning, where I wrote this book hoping that if it was really specific to my experience and to the, all of the many, many, many tools I've put in place, that would be applicable to anyone, composer or not, who's reading it. Because I think I think the more we drill down, and this goes for writing, um, like when you're writing your own poems too, if you write really generally about nature or beauty, it's not as powerful as if you drill down into what specifically makes that experience what it is, um, what's at the heart of it, and what is unique about that experience for you. I think once we uh, find that little like nugget of truth and very specific truth, that's what resonates. I know that that's true of me as a reader too. Um, whenever I read advice, it so often it's a, a specific story from that person's life that I end up taking with me and not just the general advice to like, let it go. Like, like acknowledge your doubts and release them. I can say that as a chapter title, but then I have to give really specific examples and advice to make it resonate. Yeah. It's so much more powerful too when you're when you hear someone tell a specific story and then you're able to relate to it. It's like it makes it all the more meaningful. So yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, has the has the book been well received? Has has it been successful? I just purchased a copy, by the way, just now while you were talking. I went on Amazon. I was like, I'm buying this because uh, I, I can't wait to get through that. You know, self-doubt. I think that's something that all of us creatives um, worry about because we're bearing our soul. We put our we put ourselves out there into the world when we make when we create our art, whatever that may be. I, I was going to say, too, I don't know a single artist, composer, artist of any kind who does not deal with self-doubt. 
Like we all feel like we all have moments, I think, of feeling like we're alone in the kinds of doubt and anxiety that we face, but we're totally not. We all, we're all deeply insecure people. (laughs) Um, Yes. But yeah, the book has been doing really well. Um, I, I've been really happy with the response it's gotten. I think I was imagining putting it out into the world and having it just be there as a resource, um, hopefully for years to come where there's just kind of a steady trickle of sales as new people discover it. And so far two years in, that's been, uh, what happens like there are little spikes in sales as more people read it and talk about it with their friends and, or leave reviews, um, like on Goodreads or Amazon or whatever. And, and so, yeah, from a, from a practical business side, I've been really happy with the sales of the book. And then also whenever someone takes the time to send an email, um, or message on Instagram or something, either like tagging the book somewhere or just saying, I read it and it really helped. And I was like, telling a specific story. Like I'm writing this piece and I was having trouble with this element of it. And then I read this chapter at exactly the right time. Um, those just make my day. They make me so happy. I'm like, that's why I wrote that's you are the reason why I wrote this book. Thank you for reading it. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, we'll put, we'll definitely put a link to, uh, to the book in our show notes so that our audience can navigate to it easily and pick up a copy and, and check it out. Cause I think that that's wonderful. So, uh, looking forward Dale, uh, what, uh, upcoming performances of your works are, are coming up that you're excited about? So I, I'm currently writing a piece for the LA master crawl, which is exciting. Cause I, I love that chorus and they're my local, uh, home, well, not my new home. I grew up in New Jersey, but I've been in LA for, I think going on 13 years now, um, over 12 years. And just adore the master crawl. So any, anytime I get to work for them, um, with them, that's great. And I'm finishing up a piece for mezzo soprano and guitar that was supposed to be 15 minutes, but has ballooned to like 25 plus minutes, uh, for a group called the dream songs project. Um, and it's these weird texts about like delightfully weird. I say weird as a, as a compliment for these um, text by Christina Marie Darling and Carol Guess about weddings and just it's like skewering the weird aspects of getting married. Um, but with these kind of surreal elements, like one poem has a ball and chain shop where like the bride picks out the right, like which color uh, ball and chain does she want for what it's, it's these weird, like they're really funny. They're, they're very like, they're silly elements are very dark elements and they're just so, again, so weird and great. Um, and guitar, oh, guitar is so hard. Like, Rarely am I composing, and then the act of composing is physically challenging. Like, uh, yes, I'll have, have maybe some shoulder tension from I'm not sitting upright, but playing the guitar, I do not have calluses from, uh, well, I might now, but I've been struggling to learn guitar to write this piece for the last few months. And it's basically done. I'm so happy because my hands are no longer tingling. <laughs> yeah, I see that guitar on the piano behind you. Is that the, yeah. that's the guitar in question? That's the, it's my <laughs> blue, it's like a $60 blue guitar because it just needs to function. I don't have to play it in public. I just need to... I'm going to put this torture uh, device away when I'm done. Never play yeah. it again. Oh, it's, it's going right back in the closet. The second that this piece is officially. Yeah. Um, Dale, where can folks find you online? 
So uh, my website, daletrombor.com is always the best place to reach me. And you can also use the contact form and that'll go, that goes to my assistant, Melanie, who's great. Um, but ultimately it also goes to me. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm off of Facebook. I'm thinking about maybe leaving Twitter, although I've been on Twitter for, I think, over 10 years now. And it, it like breaks my heart to think of leaving, but I've been so happy not having Facebook. Anyway, I'm at Dale Trumbor, one word, on uh, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Isn't it funny these weird, like uh, dysfunctional relationships we have with social media? That every <laughs> like at the regular intervals we find yeah. ourselves saying, Dale, "I think I'm going to break up with Facebook this week." Dale, where can we find you dancing on TikTok? What is your <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly>. never. <laughs> same, never same same same. <laughs> well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Dale. We thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and talking us through it. I can't wait to to see new pieces from you performed all over the place because I really, I spent a lot of time um, with your music, uh, obviously last night in preparation for this conversation, but also because we're preparing Spiritus Mundi. And something that I feel like um, is at the core of your music is is something that's very modern, the, the sound of your music, I'm talking about musically, the sound of your music is very modern and and challenges me from like a tonal standpoint, but at the same time, there's something also at the core of it that's very familiar and reference to uh, the the history of music and to things that I recognize in music. And I think it's just this beautiful balance between those two things, between modernity and something that is more familiar. And I just think that you're so, so talented and I'm just very excited to continue to follow your path and your journey as a composer because it's just going to be beautiful, I'm sure. So, it's thanks. those it's those killer melodic lines, Zane. It's just what you do with those melodies is just stunning. Oh, anyway. Yeah, we're gushing a little Thank bit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for gushing. <laughs> but this has been a great conversation, and we just really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, and yeah, we hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks so much again for the great great conversation. Let's finish off this episode with an example of Dale's unique blending of the modern and the familiar, as well as her killer melodic lines in Spiritus Mundi, commissioned and premiered by Susie Digby, OBE, and the Golden Bridge Consort, as a contemporary reflection on the Orlando de Lasus Motet, Timor et Tremor.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Organ pipes dusted and reset by Chorus Dolores, who once met Nadia Boulanger. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.